Welcome to the School of the Word. This is Lesson 91 in our teaching series, As in the Days of Noah, titled Summary of the Book of Revelation, Part 26, Chapter 20, New Heaven and Earth. Our teacher is Alan Smith. Good morning, saints of the Most High God. How are you? As we begin this morning, for those of you that do not know, Ron Ross uh, passed away, and he is now with the Lord. Kind of a, he'd been in bad health, but still it was not uh, predicted. It seems as though that I was there while with the pastor, and this is Russell and Janet, I think. And as it really appeared that, I mean, Ron was kind of here talking one minute, and 15 minutes later he was gone. It was kind of like the Lord just came and got him and took him. It was uh, really quite amazing, to be honest with you. So we'll be prayer in prayer for Janice and her family. Their daughter, Erin, was actually, had just left a few days prior on a cruise, but she flew in last night, and she's with her, her mother now. So we want to pray for that family. All right, this morning as we get started once again uh, in the book of Revelation, as we continue to try to get revelation of what's happening in this day that we're living, the time period we're living, with what's going on around us. This is a period of being trained, if you will. It is a time of training, this life is, but it's also a time that for some reason God's given us this time on earth to seek Him and to learn more about Him. Believe it or not, we're not here so that God will spend all of His time trying to make us happy. That's not the concept, even though we tend to think that that is the idea, but that's not the idea. Some of you older saints have surely caught on to that by now, caught on to it. So we have to say, what is it, the purpose? And our, the purpose is not so that God will get to know us, but so that we'll get to know God. He already knows us. For us to discover what His ways are, and His, our purpose here is has something to do with the hereafter. It's not all about being here. It's about being here, learning, striving, if you will, to know more about God. And it's, in, it's my prayer going into this new year that the hunger to know God will return once again to God's people. Those that love God, we've got two or three different places that Christian believers are in. Some are born again and they're content with that. Others have been born again totally impressed with God and His Word and His ways, walked with Him 30 years, but kind of crescendo there and has stopped learning. They're content with where they are. The hunger to continue to learn God's Word and new revelations has somewhat ceased. And I'm praying that the hunger to know God's Word will increase this year as we go into 2024. Boy, didn't that sound odd. It is right here upon us. And I really am persuaded that the people of God that our understanding, our revelation, our anointing, that all of this would be at a place of increase. But I do understand the first thing that's got to return is the hunger to know God and to know Him more. And that, you know, we're trying to replace it with flashy lights and great productions, and which I enjoy all that. But that will not replace just the hunger for God, for His Word. That's my prayer for 2024 as we move forward. In today's uh, teaching, I am getting into the second coming. Uh, two weeks ago, the last thing we did was we played that video of the old black preacher talking about who Jesus was. I don't know if you remember that, if you got to see it. I think it's pretty dynamic. We were setting the stage of the second coming of Christ. Who is Jesus? Actually, I'll be doing the next service today, and I'm wanting to bring emphasis 
we're all sitting here with a level of understanding of who Jesus is. We all have an understanding of what that is. And if I asked you all to give me that understanding, you could do it. But my question is, have you exhausted the definition of who Jesus is? Is there benefits in knowing more of who Jesus is? So uh, I have a, a pressing upon me for us to discover the king that's coming to the earth. I believe we're really close to the second coming of Christ. That being said, the greatest revelation of who he is is supposed to be today. Because the closer you get to his appearing, the more of the revelation of who he is, we as the children of God, the church of God, we should have the greatest revelation of who he is today. That being said, the greatest battle to not know who he is is today. The greatest battle for believers not to know who he is is today because the greatest understanding is available right before his appearing. The last 2,000 years, the scriptures were lost for, we call it the dark ages, perhaps for a 1,000 or so years. And it seems since the Reformation, you can go there, some do, some don't. But let's just say right along the Reformation, it's like truth in God's word started to be recovered given to the people of God. We quit following a priest. The Word of God was, through the Gutenberg Press, was made available to the common folk, common man. And since then, since common man have gotten the Word of God, revelation of the truth of God's Word has started being recovered, if you will. And so there's more truth recovered today that's ever been made available to mankind. And the question is, if you stopped learning 30 years ago, you're, you need to get rebooted. There's more been discovered about God and His Word in the last 30 years. And am I for the old-time way? The answer is I am. But I'm also for and understand that God's Holy Spirit will bring new revelation and understanding to the old scriptures to apply to today. And we see that in Matthew 13. It's the seventh parable. It talks about a scribe. I believe that we're living in that last parable of Matthew 13. It says that the scribe will reach into his satchel and he'll pull out things that are old and things that are new. doesn't mean that the old changes. It means you get more revelation with the new of the old. And that's called the scribe, the last parable. In Matthew 13, Matthew 13, his parable is describing the kingdom of God down through the ages and the ages we're living in. So us being in the fulfillment of the scribe, parable, if you will. We see that there's things that are old that we'll learn, and then there's new, things new that we'll learn. Not so much that it's extra biblical, but it's new to the church or to the group of believers. We see that, and I'll perhaps show it in a slide here today, that as God has recovered and is recovering his truth, with more truth, it is comes more responsibility, and with more responsibility should come and does come more anointing. We're wanting more anointing, and but we need to understand God anoints his word, so the more revelation we have, the greater the anointing that's in the house. Now, and I will be going over some of those concepts in the next service. Here we got Billy Graham, and uh, he says, if Christianity is valid, why is there so much evil in the world? To this, the famous preacher replied, with so much soap, why are so many dirty people in the world? Christianity, like soap, must be personally applied if it is to make a difference in our lives. Pretty simplistic, do you not think? Pretty simplistic, but yet tremendous truth. And so, if you take that concept and that idea, 
as believers, and if we're in a dirty world, the possibilities of us being dirtier in this day, the possibility of us needing more soap today than the church has ever needed, we would have to say, we can't say one without the other because we're in the world. And we can see that the need to be prayed up, repented up in God's word, in his presence, which is an issue of today, takes care of us in that. Now, this is one chart, and you'll not see it much anymore, that I've had about the four main groups of sevens. We'll hit it right quickly. You've got seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven vials of God. You've got Jesus' return. Then you've got what I call, or not what I call as much as theologians call, the parenthetical pause between each one of the last seals or trumpets or the vials of God or the bowls, some people translate it. You can also see the Laodicea church. And I'll go over this just quickly one more time because you tend to get just a little more each time I say it. So what I want us to see is that the seven seals happen in the Laodicean church age. You don't want to see this too much linear as you do vertical. One's within the other, and I've said this before, you see these little Chinese dolls, one's in another and another, and they call them something. This kind of works like that. The seven seals are in the Laodicean church age. So some people say, well, Alan, I believe the church is going to be here in tribulation. Well, I would, my answer would be, well, I do too. Do I think that there's people in Christianity today that uh, believe themselves to be born again, but they're not? They have the philosophy in their head, but they don't have the kingdom in their heart. And so we understand that the being born again is a true time of having an experience with the Holy Spirit of God. That is a true phenomena. But there will be every, we have what we call the world of Christendom, which is everybody that confesses Christ or confesses to be a Christian. And then within Christendom, which is, that covers everybody in the whole world that says they're a Christian. And then you've got, that's what we call Christendom. And then you've got Christians or Christianity of being born again within Christendom, knowing that that's just a percentage. What percentage, we do not know. But we just know that there's a percentage of true Christians in Christendom. So when you have the rapture of the church, those that profess who are truly not born again will still be here. They won't be raptured out. So that is the basis of uh, Christianity that will be left on the earth after the rapture of the church. Perhaps will be the seed, if you will, to those that are saved during the tribulation period, which they discover that they have to endure there's a duration you have to endure to the end to be saved, it says, during this time. But nonetheless, this is all happening in the Laodicean church age. And you got to understand, in Laodicean church age, those previous churches, or symbolically, the previous churches are also in the Laodicean church age. Because we, it's believed that the Philadelphia-type church is the one that's raptured out. And once you start seeing through all of Scripture, you, then you have what we call there, you got the, the parentheses or the parenthetical Scriptures, God starts bringing more insight. The same way the seven trumpets are into seven angels, or seventh angel, it starts appearing there. And uh, But you remember the, the angels or the seven seals are in the, the Laodicean church. Same way with the seven vials. So we can see that the Laodicean church is going to be here or a representative of the church will be here through the tribulation period. And then that's the reason some people argue, well, no, the church is going to be here. And then so some, oh, some say it's raptured. And I just want you to have the biblical understanding of what's actually taking place. Here in chapter 6, 
and also in chapters 8 and 9. Chapter 6, you see the seals. Chapters 8 and 9, you see the trumpets. The parentheses are the parenthetical scriptures, actually, chapter 7. And parenthetical or a parentheses, you'll see in chapters 10 and 14. Same way with the wrath of God is in chapter 17, or the vials and the parentheses there is in chapter 16. That shows us how the, and I've said this before, it's a, God's Word has an architectural structure to it. And the reason it does is it holds itself up. And, you, and it's helpful when approaching Scripture to understand God's architectural structure down through the Scriptures so that you can understand how it's put together. Does that make sense? And so that's the reason uh, we have so many different interpretations. People just jump in all different places, not really following the blueprint of how God puts things together. And I promise you, it's it doesn't work like the human brain works. God's ways just are not our ways. His structure is not our structure. I mean, come on, love your enemies. That's not going to hold up in the structure of mankind. But we start to learn that God has a structure to all things. And when we start learning his structure, we start learning how he thinks. And when we learn the word of God and it gets in us, believe it or not, it'll start to change our own personal thinking. Now we see here, the Bible tells us that the earthly world symbolized by Babylon will be destroyed, making way for a new heaven and a new earth. It says that in Revelation 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. So we realize that we're living in a time now that Babylon, we think Babylon's been destroyed, but yet the spirit of Babylon has totally consumed the world today. There is also, as we move into the second coming of Christ, it starts to bring up questions of then the millennial reign of Christ. Christ comes towards the end of the tribulation. Then there's a great battle of Armageddon. The way I understand the scripture, those of us that were called up in the rapture of the church will come back with him during this time. Do I think that we'll be having a sword and battling? No, I don't because Jesus is just going to say a few words and that's pretty much it. It's just, that's about the, the length of that one. But in Revelation 19, it says, And now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. Second time we heard of white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness. He judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. In his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a white robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Isn't that amazing? His name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. I guess during the rapture of the church and in his interim time of seven years, six of those seven years you'll be taking horse riding lessons. Uh, for those of you that are a little scared of horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. You see that? Comes out of his mouth. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I don't know about you, but I'm so looking forward to that day. I have this funny feeling that once we're in that day, which is 
not as far away as you might think, but I have this funny feeling that I wished I had taken advantage of this day more than I am. Does anybody else have that feeling? I have this feeling because I know when we're there, this day will have passed. And so it causes me to wonder, am I fulfilling the opportunity of this day? So when I'm in that day, I will not have a regret, could we say? And we can see how we fill up all of our life for today, that it takes away from what we can take when we're there then. I will have to say this about Ron Ross. I knew Ron for years. I knew Ron when he was in Florida for years and before he came this way. And if there was ever a man who gave most of his life to others and for the hereafter, it was Ron. As far as material things, he did not invest too much in that. It's just when he got born again, the Lord just did something to his heart. And a lot of us tend to waver somewhat from that day. And Ron was always, every article he had, you could say, well, what's Ron writing about? It's about the love of God. I've asked him before, Ron, do you not have another topic? And he would say, no, I do not. And so Ron was always writing articles on the topic of the love of God. And the only thing I can say is how many ways can you write about that? Ron's probably got 1,213 articles on it. And I doubt seriously he exhausted it. We see here in Daniel's prophesying of this time, it's given to us, and in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand for how long? Forever is a long time. And it's speaking about a kingdom. And you can see why the nation Israel was looking for Jesus the Messiah to be that king to fulfill these prophecies. It says it in the next verse. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountains without hands, and that it break into pieces, the iron, brass, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and interpretation thereof sure. This is, of course, a reference to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, and it says in that interpretation there's a rock hewn out and it comes against the statue and destroys it. That is the same reference and time of Revelation we see here in Revelation 19. It goes on to say thee, the doom of the beast and the false prophet. Now I'm not going to do an exhaustive thing on this anyway whatsoever, but in Revelation 19:20, the beast was taken and him and the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshiped his image. These both were cast alive and to a lake of fire burning with brimstone. Last chapter of Isaiah will give you some more information. He shows us in this millennial reign of Christ that outside of Jerusalem there'll be a hole open up and that you can walk outside the city and you can look down into hell. And that's where you can hear, you can see the fire. There's actually going to be a hole there outside of Jerusalem. And in that millennial reign there'll be instantaneous judgment. And if you're judged somewhat, they'll say, okay, you go over there and jump in that hole of that open pit. Now that's literal, it's not figuratively. So there's a lot of things happens in the millennial reign of Christ. There again, one of the components is instantaneous judgment. Now in the book of Acts, first part of the book of Acts, you've got to understand the Jews, the Jewish believers there, were seeing the first part of 
the prophecy of Joel take place. This is that that was spoken of by the prophet Joel. So they knew that this prophecy, of course, is about this king and this kingdom coming. But we also know when, the, when Jesus comes again, there'll be Jesus, and you'll also have the 12 disciples sitting on 12 thrones, it says, judging the world and the nation Israel. But what happens when you study the millennial reign of Christ, there's instantaneous judgment. And the reason we know that that kingdom was being offered to Israel because Ananias and Sapphira come under instantaneous judgment. That's what happened to them. They lied to the Holy Spirit, and there was instantaneous judgment. That is the characteristic of the millennial reign of Christ. So they knew it was upon them. You've got to understand, this reason you have to make this distinction when you get to the Apostle Paul. God saves this Apostle Paul, chief of sinners, he says, and he raises him up, takes him up to the third heaven, and gives him a revelation of the cross of Christ, that the blood atonement of Christ is the forgiveness of all sin. Now, you got to understand, they didn't know that at that time, Acts 2. That revelation didn't come till after Acts 9. And so it's after that revelation of Acts 9 that the Apostle Paul got struck down on the road to Damascus. All of that's what the Bible calls a mystery, calls it a secret, hidden God before the foundations of the earth. Ephesians 3 explains it. And he says that in Paul, God called him up to heaven. He sat with Jesus, and Jesus told him, okay, here's the deal. My blood is forgiveness of all sins. You go down there and tell everybody, and because of this, I'm going to extend my grace and mercy to mankind. So Paul, he goes running around getting Gentiles saved. They believe that he, and, and he has the signs of the apostle. He's doing miracles and raising the dead. Kind of messed up Peter and the other disciples. Later, he went to Jerusalem, and they had a conference. They got together. And because Paul had the signs of an apostle, because he had the signs of an apostle, they knew he was from God. Peter said, well, he's got the signs of an apostle. We don't understand it, but what he's saying we know is the word of God. And that's where Paul and Peter had this thing. Paul said, well, listen, I'm going to go to the Gentiles and you go to the Jews." Peter said, deal. Because you got to understand, Peter held the, what's called the keys of the kingdom. What Peter bound on earth is bound in heaven. So they had to come together on that thing. So then you have the writings of Paul, Paul running around talking about the grace. Paul said, I rejoice in the cross of Christ. And Peter preached a murder indictment against Israel. You killed the king. So you see the two things that are laying out there. Now they, in the end, before Peter passed, Peter came in and the disciples, they came into understanding of the grace of God. John writes about it. But John was written much later, probably even after Paul was martyred. We know at least 30 years later. Nonetheless, where in the world, how did I get there? How did I, where am I going here, Lord? The false prophet, how did I get there? Oh, about the millennial reign. So what was happening was, in the millennial reign of Christ, you have instantaneous judgment. Things, my point's this, things shift. Now, the reason, only reason I'm telling you all that is, is so that hopefully you'll appreciate the day in which you're living. We're living in a day of the grace of God. Instantaneous judgment's not happening to you. Can somebody say amen? It's not happening to us. God is extending His grace and His mercy. And not only that, he's given the anointing when we give his grace and mercy that the Holy Spirit will be there and convict us of our sin. This is the day in which we're living in. So to me, it's very important to understand the day we're living in, but it's also with great gratitude that I'm not living in this other day. 
And you see, you got to understand the rapture of the church. We're a people of the grace of God. God's not going to switch on us grace one day, and then all of a sudden he's going to put us into instantaneous judgment. You've, you've got to understand the scriptures. That's Just say we're special people. I just reckon we are. That's all I can tell you. We have been birthed and born in a time that others would love to have this privilege in the last 2,000 years. We're special people, a special time, and upon us has been given the utmost of the grace and mercy of God. And for us to understand it, to me, is paramount. And us appreciating the day in which we're, what's been extended to us. We walk around with our heads and we hold them high because we've been forgiven of all of our dirty, rotten stuff. And in another time, that would not have been so and will not be so. So I just want us to appreciate that. Now we see that Satan is bound, it says, in the abyss. It goes on for a thousand years here in Revelation 20. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. You see that? He's bound for a thousand years. Why in the world? What happens after a thousand years, I'll not go into. But And cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should be deceived the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be losing a little season. Now, we have people who believe, and you've heard me talk about it, replacement theology, millennialism. There's people, most of the church today is under the persuasion we're living in the millennial. Well, if that's the case... Didn't look like to me Satan's been bound. Did, did somebody miss that one somewhere? It's kind of an important part of this millennium. But most of the church believes that. I didn't say a minority. Give you a little news flash. Us and sitting here, the way we believe is a minority. I know there's a lot of different views in the room, but I pretty much know all of them, and you're still in the minority of what Christendom believes today. Most of Christendom believes that we're living in the millennial. Now, I'll show it to you right quickly. The millennium is a problem for replacement theology, which is non-biblical. The first church council in Acts 15 still recognized this promise of God of a literal kingdom. Now, this is Acts 15. In Acts 15, we know the church starts in Acts 2. This is Acts 15, and in this council, they were still recognizing this covenant that God had made with the nation Israel. The revelation of the blood atonement of Christ had already been given, the forgiveness of sins, the grace and mercy of God had already been, been given. But still they recognized this kingdom age of these promises that God had made. It's in Acts 15, 15. And to this agree, the words of the prophets. Now what happened at this council? These Gentiles had been getting saved, and so they had to get together to see if they need to be circumcised or not. And Paul made the argument, come on, they've got the gift of the Holy Ghost. Why do we want to put these laws on them that we couldn't even live up to very well? And Peter said, yeah, I agree with you. And so at that council, that's when they decided that the Gentiles didn't have to be circumcised. But in that, and we know that that's what takes place at the council, one of the main things, but I don't want us to bypass it, this important scripture, just because it's not pointed out that often, because it agrees with what's happening in Revelation. To this agreement, we agree the words of the prophets as it is written. After this, I will return and will build again that tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. So we see that even though they discussed these different things about the Gentiles, they said, yeah, but let's not forget now what God's, these promises, he's talking about the Abrahamic and 
Davidic covenant. Let's say, okay, we've covered all this stuff, but now let's don't forget these promises that God's made unto Israel. It's interesting to me. In Isaiah 9, 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and their government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor of the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now, it says a child is born. Now, we know that this happens in Bethlehem. We just have the Christmas season. We understand this. It also says in the next verse, Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So it says the son is given up there nine. And of course, that's what happened at Golgotha. We know he's born and he's given. And it says upon this throne, of David, it says this in Luke, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth us a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, shall be called the Son of God, the highest. The Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Now, we know that these things are true, and they're established. So we have, with, with all millennialism and re replacement theology, what's going on is that all of this millennial stuff, they make an allegory out of all of the, out of the Scriptures. And they're saying that this millennial and the king, all oh, this is in your heart. And it doesn't happen literal. But here's what you got. This is there again is the architect of God and his word. God gives something literal as a picture to show you something spiritual. So the kingdom of God is in your heart. But it doesn't do away with the literal kingdom of God. Because God does things literal to give a picture to you and show you what's spiritual. Now you've got to understand something. The Christian that you are today... If you agree with the statement I just made, if you agree with that statement of the literal and the spiritual, you are a Christian of the last 200 years. That's what you are. Because everything was spiritualized for 1,500 years. Then all of a sudden you had this crowd came along, you know, all of a sudden with the Reformation during that time period, all of a sudden the, world, the Word started meaning something. People started reading it and looking at it. So keep in mind that we are a people of the literal and the spiritual. Understand that the literal is a prophetic picture of the spiritual within humanity. We know that there was a literal temple of God. But we also know today that we are a spiritual temple of God. So it's kind of, to me, it's pretty simple. But nonetheless, people have made that pretty complicated. The Bible tells us that the early, earthly world, symbolized by Babylon, will be destroyed, making way for a new heaven and a new earth. And I'll give this example, the first two chapters of the Bible, the last two chapters. Take the first two chapters, Genesis 1-2, put it together for Revelation 20 and 21. First two chapters, last two chapters. If you want to know what God had in mind, a complete Bible without the fall of man is Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 21-22. And if you read those together as a complete story, you'll know what God was up to when he did all of this. Then Genesis 3 happened, which was a fall of man. We kind of messed up God's plan and have been for a long time. So God said, I'm going to have to do something to get us all back on the same page. And that's what Jesus is all about. Now, Revelation 21, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. I want us to look at something here in verse 2. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared for a bride, adorned for her husband. Do you see that? Prepared as a bride. 
And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears, somebody say amen, from their eyes, and there will be no more death, neither sorrow crying, neither there shall be any more pain. Somebody say amen, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are faithful and are true. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful, unbelieving, and the abominable, and the murderers, and whoremongers, sorcerers, and idolaters, all the liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with the fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's what's outside of Jerusalem in the millennial reign opened up. You can see it. Now the bride here. He says in Revelation 21, 9 and 10, And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. Do you see that? Everybody says that, uh, you know, we're the bride of Christ and all that. Well, actually, we're the body of Christ right now. The bride of Christ... Well, no, I'm not going to go there. And I'll show you the bride of the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to the great and high mountain and showed me that great city. Now, you have to compare great city, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. The great city is the Lamb's wife. You see that? I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. Carried me away, high mountain, showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone and precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Now, there again, we start getting into, I've already taught on the Jewish wedding. I'll not teach it again, but I'll pick up here next week. And I'll, when you understand the bride of Christ, you understand the Jewish wedding, then you understand the second coming of Christ and what's happening. We are the body of Christ today. We are, are we referred to? We're referred to as the bride in waiting. We're being betrothed, if you will. Anyway, I'll get into that next week if you're interested in all that stuff. And I'll try, I'm going to try my best to bring this to somewhat of a conclusion. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for this day. Lord, I ask and pray that if anything that I've taught is not of you, that it fall to the ground. If anything that I've said is of you, I pray it'll be quickened to our hearts. I pray that we'll test it, as your scripture says, as Bereans. We'll test the scriptures to see if those things are so. And I pray, oh God, that this church will truly shine, that you'll truly give us the revelation of who you are as we go into 2024, that we might be the church that needs to be upon the earth in 2024. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.